I know you're a dog person, so I don't know if you'll get this okay. or not. But like, if you've had enough experience with a cat, like, have you ever watched a cat like give itself a bath? Sure. You know, you know, so that they're they're just sitting there and they're like licking their wherever, mm -hmm. and then they they just like stop. <laughs> it's like it's like they just it's like they're paused and they're it's like something <laughs> is turning inside to tell them like what body part they should lick next. Uh -huh. And then they go do that for a little bit. And then they just sort of pause and they're just like, they move on to the next thing. It's like there's some sort of internal tracking system that tells them like what to lick and what hasn't been licked enough recently or whatever. Mm -hmm. There was a funny video I saw on Instagram the other day that was, it was just, somebody just narrated a video of a cat giving itself a bath, but it was that whole like ennui way of doing yeah, it. Yeah. That was just like, am I really clean? <laughs> Is my tongue cleaning me? <laughs> I feel like I've been here before. Like it went through this like whole like sad cat thing. That's about, amazing. Like... This is Charles. And this is Rachel. From BNV Radio. This is Design Goggles. Designers talk a lot about how we can have the biggest positive impact on the world, and sustainability comes up a lot in those chats. We like to think that when designers think green, good things tend to happen for everyone. What sometimes seems like the greenest path forward, though, doesn't always add up to sustainability in the end. That's where greenwashing comes in. Oftentimes, designers want to make ecologically conscious, green-minded choices in design. We research sustainable products and choose companies with values that match ours, and try not to use certain, more wasteful materials and methods. In reality, though, we sometimes succumb to an advertising machine that uses green marketing to paper over business as usual. Every choice we make in design, even those that might seem at first to be a no-brainer, like using recycled products, for instance, might not be as green as we think. It's a lot to unravel, and to help us see the forest through the trees, so to speak, we're joined by Ryan Adanalian of Board & Vellum, an architecture firm here in Seattle. Ryan, thank you for coming back on. Yeah, thank you. For that second and a half time. We recorded this show once already, and then we lost our first show. It got corrupted. So now we're going to like go down a parallel alternate universe where we have this <laughs> we have this conversation again. How are you? Good. How are you? Very good. So again, let's get into greenwashing. When we first talked about this subject, we were just like, oh man, we should like sit down, you know, around Earth Day and talk about sustainability. And the conversation just almost immediately slid over to greenwashing and all of the preconceived notions people have on what living a green lifestyle is and how to do that. And marketing, it seemed like, came up more than anything else. So first and foremost, what is greenwashing and how does marketing play a part in that? I think greenwashing is when you spin something to be, say it's sustainable when it's really not. So, you know, maybe there's an oil company that says our pipes are 10% less leaky than the other person. <laughs> right. It's like, that's still not green. You know, In fact, You're they're still... compostable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So, you know, that's not green, but it's stuff like that it's used all the time. To me, what's really sustainability is reducing carbon emissions, trying to fix the greenhouse gases, and picking things that have really good quality that'll last a long time. Mm -hmm. I feel like in design, especially in architecture, we are constantly being sold on products that have recycled material with you know, uh, phrases like cradle to cradle and low VOC ingredients and products. But the spin machine makes it really difficult to determine which one of these products, if any at all, actually reduce a carbon footprint. And clients have to wade through this forest of products as yeah. well. 
And I feel like it makes it very difficult for people. Do you find that a lot of people out there want to be greener, don't know how, or think they're already doing a great job because they're just like, well, check out all the awesome recycled stuff I just bought. Yeah, I guess like, you know, those different types of programs like Cradle to Cradle and Red List are all great because it helps make it easier for folks to pick the right thing and healthier things. And yeah, it just kind of makes it easier for everybody. It's hard. There's so many different layers and pieces and things that go into all this stuff. I mean, as at a conference the other day, they were talking about how there's different metal roofs and there's like basically three different colors that you can have on your roof that is acceptable runoff onto your yard. Mm-hmm. And because everything else is too toxic. And so like that doesn't even count the asphalt shingles and, you know, all the other things that we have. So it's really even more than you didn't think about before. I mean, so it's great that people are looking into that. I mean, a lot of these uh, chemical companies, they'll take what they've been using before, it gets banned, and then they change a chemical compound just ever so slightly, and then they kind of get through it. So then it's another cycle of that. And we're learning about what that does to people. So. Oh, yeah. I just was reading an article today, which was actually relatively inspirational, which uh, was about a designer who won a sustainability design competition. And it was to design like the most sustainable possible water bottle. And there were a bunch of different entries and some were like, oh, we use this cool system of making the water bottle that took so much less resources or, oh, we make it from only materials sourced nearby. The guy who won the competition just designed the coolest looking water bottle that no one would throw out. So people would just constantly refill it because it was just so cool. And so people on average refilled the bottle over like 300 times or something. Oh, wow. And so he won because like he didn't do anything different than any other bottle manufacturer other than just making it awesome. And I thought that that was such a kind of standing recycling on its ear. Yeah, but like, like how, I mean. I can show you, I can't do it on the radio. No. I'll show you a picture of it. It's no, I mean, effective. but like we all have water bottles that we, I'm sure I've filled my water bottle up way more than no, that. No, but this was a as... clear plastic water bottle that you would just buy a bottle of Dasani in. Oh, so, not so it's like not a... replacing the water bottles of people that own refillable right. water bottles. Right. It's, it's getting people that are not owners of right a water, water bottle that would cost you the same price as getting one out of a you know and it's sold in like a deli yes mm-hmm. exactly totally different. exactly okay. gotcha. and we often don't have that conversation you brought up just a second ago reusability mm-hmm. almost before because everybody focuses on recycled content all the time it's like yeah but are you going to throw this out in two weeks or can you even recycle it now mm-hmm. which is different from cradle to cradle but making something that's significant in a way that you're going to keep it However, yeah. that is is something nobody the seems to talk of about. Permanence, rather than the value of imminent reuse or imminent mm-hmm. destruction through positive means, right? Ooh, I like that. That's so fatalistic. Yeah, I was like, wow. <laughs> All of a sudden, it just seems so dark. I'm like, yeah. Oh. This week's show is titled "Imminent Destruction <laughs> Through Positive Means." Mm. <laughs> Rachel takes us on a dark journey through yeah. her soul. Yeah, I'll lower my tone of voice for it. That's great. I'll get a little closer to the mic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that that's it, though. It's great that they're coming up with something that can be reused because they say that it's, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. So recycle is mm-hmm. kind of that last line of defense before everything else. Yeah, actually, that's interesting that you bring that up because, like, that's the phrase that we've been using. Like, I can remember that being from a small child. Yeah. That was the phrase. But mm-hmm. nobody really talks about the first two. And recycle is the third. And it's always been like, oh, you got to recycle. And it's the least yeah, effective. It's it the is. least yeah. effective. And people aren't reducing enough. Or we're using enough. And mm-hmm. so we need like to promote those first two R's in the, yeah. in the chain, It's almost right? like because it's recyclable, you feel like, you know, a lot of people can just use it and get rid of it. And it's not a yeah. big deal. But it still takes a lot to get it back to. We need some sort of 
campaign to get people to reuse more. Yeah, there was an article on Dazine about this published recently. Basically, I mean, the title of the article is really eye-catching because it was like recycling is bulk and here's why. He was going into the fact that essentially once studied, recycling essentially only reduces the guilt you have in throwing something away mm -hmm. and extends the life of petroleum-based products, right? which extends the power and life of petroleum companies whose interest is for recycling to be as effective as possible. So their products can continue to be made. And so you can continue to feel better about consuming them. <laughs> but no one ever actually has a conversation about consuming less in general mm -hmm. or making plastic out of something other than petroleum. The rest of the article was an introduction to this algae-based plastic, which is super cool. But in design, we never focus on that. Like, how can we actually do and build less and get more out of it? You know, it's so interesting. I was talking with a colleague at lunch today, Chris Palms. And oh, he doesn't know anything. Yeah. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we were talking about how to reuse and like, you know, we're talking about, okay, well, what's the future of architecture, you know? And we're talking about <laughs> modular design and like if there were ways to create something that you can create something small, they can just plug right into it. So like, I don't know if there's a way that like you can create a wall system where you can just open up a hatch and replace the insulation and put in new insulation. Mm -hmm. And it's just like this plug and play type of thing. And we were talking about how that could be such a green alternative to things because, you know, you got more companies talking to each other that are plug and play with, you know, different parts and you could make it last for a long time. And I just recently got the Volkswagen van again and it's been around for 30, well, it's an 85, so 33 years. And it's still great because it's got all these different parts and components that just plug and play into it. And it still is, you know, hold its value today. And it's still a great car and it's hard to fix or modify anything else right now. And so yeah. figuring out ways that you can modify things, you know, future proof it. And that's like the to. water bottle, right? Like it's a design, not necessarily quote unquote perfect, but a design so good that you need one. Right. And you're good. Yeah. And people love it so much. They take care of it and they restore them and it lives a longer life and, it, and all that. Yeah. And I think that just really boils down to quality. You know, mm -hmm. if it's well built, people like it. You know, think of like coming into a, a new space or when you set up your desk for the first time, you know, it's nice and brand new and clean and you just want to take care of it. It's the whole philosophy of fewer, better things. Yeah. That phrasing is what a company I really like, Kuyana, uses. And mm -hmm. it, they do clothing. It's where this came from. But that concept is to be the anti to fast fashion. Because yeah. so if you look at like all the crazy stuff that we put in landfills all the time, clothing is a huge amount of it because mm -hmm. of fast fashion has become this thing where like every... These days, it's it's more than it used to be. It's not that there's a spring collection and then a fall collection. Oh, it's like whatever. micro it's, collections. It's, it's, micro, it's, like, it's all this stuff. Second week of May collection. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's poorly made and it's just made so fast and it's so trendy and then it's thrown away. Right. And that amount of stuff that goes into landfills, I, I don't have the numbers at hand, but it is colossal. Mm -hmm. What difference does it make if it's made out of 40 percent recycled yeah. thread if, it's if you just trash it anyway, anyway after two months? Right. You know, right. and so it's a whole philosophy change of being like, you don't need to have that many things in your closet. You don't need to have all these new things each season to like get mm -hmm. fewer things that are will last for years and years. And think about how much money that is, too. Yeah. That you're just throwing, throwing away, away. every time you do that. Yeah. yeah I can't even imagine. Yeah. I recently read the Patagonia book, uh, Let My People Go Surfing. Uh, and, yeah. and there they talk about cheap people can't afford to not buy quality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's because they said that during the recession, they actually sell more than they do when it's not a recession. Mm -hmm. Because you have the one good piece that will last you for a really long time. Patagonia is doing a really good job of representing that kind of thing. Well, what immediately comes to mind for me is IKEA 
idea yeah. or target where yeah. you're buying a dresser that's she, gonna gonna be gonna done done for real quick. Yeah. And so yeah, it was a hundred dollars less, but you're gonna replace it soon, like right. really yeah. soon. Right. And you know, IKEA kitchen cabinets and all that stuff. It's like that's fine, that's great, but you're actually doing something so mm. much worse for the world by putting in something that you're gonna yeah. have to take out soon. What do you have to say for yourself, IKEA? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> target yeah if you want to come on our show <laughs> but what was inspirational about finding that article about even just this conversation is it was the first time i really felt like it was a true justification for good design and sustainability mm -hmm. not good sustainability in design it's not like oh you just glue some solar cells to the roof and you've got a green project right it was like no actually it's the thought it literally purely the thought you put into what you're making mm -hmm. so that you will not have to unmake or remake Right. And like solar cells, great. But like even then, if you're putting all that thought in, it's not that much more expensive. Only have to do it once. Everybody will be happier. Mm -hmm. Done. Mm -hmm. Podcast over. I'm yeah. just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's always an interesting thing to talk about, too, is the finance of it. You know, we always get the argument that it's, well, it's way more expensive. But, you know, we've looked into the long term cost of benefits of going green, and it's just so much more beneficial. There's actually Passive House has done a lot of studies on health benefits, too, of it, and has noticed a huge decrease in medical bills by living in a healthier place. It's oh, yeah. better, well ventilated and oh, all yeah. that good stuff. So the benefits go way deeper than just what So it's cost. sort of like buying insurance or something. You're yeah, going to spend sure. a little bit more on this product that's going to be a bit better for your health. Yeah, for and your That's health. really hard for people. I mean, when it comes down to the bottom line, it is hard. You're working on a project. Mm -hmm. It's very expensive. For a lot of people, it's one of the much bigger monetary commitments that they sure. do in their lifetime, Absolutely. right? Remodeling a house and it's hard when you're looking at all of the big numbers of everything that you're doing to be like, let's spend a little bit more on these things. Mm -hmm. I guess kind of getting back to Charles, your original question about all of this when we started is the, the way we're framing it, really. Because people are willing to spend money on things that are going to make them healthier. Mm -hmm. They buy gym memberships. They buy health insurance. I think maybe there's just a disconnect and people not connecting those last couple dots to if I spend a little bit more money on this product that has fewer VOCs, then that's the same thing as deciding that I'm not going to eat red meat this month or whatever, mm -hmm. or, not, you know, what I'm going to, I'm going to buy only organic vegetables, those kind of things. I think that there's maybe a disconnect in the public still about that. Maybe it's just because it's so much more amplified because we're talking about much bigger differences than buying this tomato or this tomato. Mm -hmm. It's really easy to show what things cost now. It's really hard to show what they'll cost later. Yeah. Although it's so hard to show what what things cost now, I feel like. Well, as yeah, well. sure. That's the thing. Yeah. I don't know. I, I kind of disagree. I think yeah, it's kind of equal, equal. I mean, that's a really I have good point. no idea when I'm drawing a project anymore what it's going to what cost. It costs. I, I could probably tell them actually what it would cost to replace. It's harder to find somebody to fix something. You can at least find someone to build something, but fix it. Like, is it a job even big enough? There aren't that many repair places anymore for anything. Mm -hmm. The system is set up against. Let's throw it out. And do yeah, that. against uh, fix it and take care of it kind of mentality. And people now inheriting houses, moving to houses, don't even have the skills to do it themselves. I mean, yeah, we do. We're all designers or makers in some way, but a lot of people aren't. And it's a change in thinking. I think it's. So it's kind of an uphill battle. How do you how do you change that? Because that actually sounds almost more like a cultural mentality. Mm -hmm. Our society has gotten used to this idea of, well, it's broken, throw it out, and has lost that mentality of, well, it's broken, let's fix it. Mm -hmm. Usually those things shift in times of scarcity, right? Right. 
you can't just buy another one and throw it out. It's not worth it. You don't have the money or I don't know, it's World War II and we're salvaging all the metals to send to the war effort. And Mm -hmm. so we're not going to just toss this away. We're going to fix it. Let's just say that we're in a time of peace. How do you change the cultural affinity for fixing things when there isn't necessarily scarcity? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Going back to what you said, Ryan, about Ikea. Oh, you said poor people can't afford to buy cheap products. products. So that's 100% true. Yet, if you buy a cheap $40 Ikea coffee table, you can't fix that coffee table. (laughs) So the things that poor people already own, because it's what they can afford are in some ways unfixable. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. on the market, there's no other option for them to replace it with. It seems like it's impossible to break at some level. And I wish there was someone occupying this middle area where for just a few dollars more, you could have something that you could actually fix. This is not backed by any kind of research. I'm just like theorizing here. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that it would be possible that you would end up in this scenario because there started to be the ability to manufacture all these things very cheaply and quickly. Mm -hmm. And so it became a thing that everybody purchased all these things that were cheap and not possible to fix and easy to break. Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas so, And and again, I'm just sort of theorizing here and and making this up, I suppose. But it seems like that back in the day, whenever that was, there were products, right? And there were always degrees of quality of products. But for the most part, things were built in a way before we had this sort of onslaught of mass cheap manufacturing where you could fix some stuff. People could fix things because things were built well enough that they would be fixable. And so then you have manufacturing at this industrial level of cheap things that are of very low quality that you cannot be fixed. And so then you have a whole population of people that don't have things that are fixable. It's like you're in a catch-22 situation. You can't. It used to be that you may have had this thing that maybe you didn't have the money to buy, but you found it or you inherited it or you got it in a yard sale or whatever. And it was broken, but it was good enough quality that you could fix it. There's less of that stuff around these days. So you can't even find as much old fixable stuff anymore as you can find abandoned cheap things that are still broken and can't really be fixed. Hmm. It's like there's a glut of the cheap stuff Mm -hmm. and not enough of the quality fixable things around for people to buy even at a discount. Yeah, I feel like back in the day it used to be my folks. I was talking with them a a while ago when I finally moved into my house and they're talking about furniture and Mm -hmm. how the furniture that they have, they inherited from folks and their grandparents, you know, from back in the day. And when they would go buy a table, they would look at it and say, that's the table I'm going to have for the rest of my life, you know? And that's like what they would do. They would look for that kind of thing. And they'd make that kind of commitment to the furniture. Yeah. And it's not like you go to Ikea and you're like, that's the table I'm going to have forever. Because even if you loved it that much, it literally was going to you die. You know it's not going to last. Yeah. yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. we have a couch right now. The couch. The only couch we have. <laughs> the last it's couch. One of our suite of couches. Period. Um, <laughs> it was my grandmother's. Yeah. And it's, you know, we're not really a fan of the upholstery that's on it. But we'd like tore off the skirt on it. And so mm-hmm. you can see it's cool carved legs and stuff. We will actually spend the money to reupholster it eventually because you can tell This thing is old and it's been through a lot. It's been shipped across the country and all these things. And we're a little rough on it, but it doesn't move. It's not at all unstable. It's not rickety. It's this old thing that has such good bones that it is worth it to reupholster it Mm -hmm. and to keep it going all these years. And I would never want to spend the money on some piece of furniture that couldn't sustain it. Like Mm -hmm. the whole thing about like good bones, like it sounds like it's one of those phrases that we've tossed around a lot or like, oh, this house has good bones or whatever. 
But when it's true and we're using it for real and it legitimately does have good bones, that is worth it. Mm -hmm. What are some of the misconceptions that you've come across when clients are coming to you with sustainable goals? What are some of the misconceptions you you find people have when they a client comes to you with sustainable goals for their project? I think the number one thing is pricing. You know, they think it's going to be more expensive. But again, that's back to the expensive for now or expensive for later. It ends up being way cheaper to do it now for the long haul than right off the bat. It's kind of hard to answer that question because people come to you with, you know, sustainability goals. But there might be, you know, that they want something that's locally sourced. That might be their biggest thing. Or they might believe that, you know, they need to reduce the carbon emissions, you know, so that's their biggest focus. Mm -hmm. So it really kind of depends, I would say. But generally, I think it's the pricing. It's fine. I don't mean to pick on Tesla owners, but one of my favorite quotes is I heard on NPR once. I forget what show. And it was like, what do you think poor people think when they see a Tesla drive through their neighborhood? Which is like such a great question. Because so many people are just like, oh, I own a Tesla. I'm like the greenest person in the world. And it's just like, but are you? And are you like, you spent all that money and you're doing this one thing. And it's like, why are you over-focusing on that one thing? Yeah. But on the other side of that coin, at least you're doing one thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and some people aren't doing anything. So, But that kind of goes back to the, are you really doing something for the better. So like you're saying like, okay, let's build a, you know, 15,000 square foot house and put solar panels on it. Now mm -hmm. we're green, you know, but it's like, it's not, you know, right. there's a, it's a balance. Right. Greener. Yeah. Man, the articles I was reading, I already told you the only one that was inspirational. The rest were definitely not inspirational. That was a great article. Oh man. Have you read that one? Yeah. The one that you sent me. Oh, I sent it to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's so weird. <laughs> it's as if you knew about it at the you same time as me. It. Yeah. <laughs> it was as if I specifically sent you that to read, but like all of the rest of them were just like as depressing as it gets. It was just like all these famous Kafka-esque stories of companies deliberately greenwashing everything. There was the famous Fiji water. Mm -hmm. They're like the most famous case of greenwashing ever is that their whole entire marketing campaign is built around 20 cents of every bottle goes towards saving the rainforests and it's ecologically sensitive bottle and it's all bottled at the source in Fiji. And they're like, yes, it is bottled in the source in Fiji and then flown around the world to where you're buying it. So that's one thing. They fly it? Yeah. They don't boat it. Apparently they fly it. Then... Over 60%, I think, don't quote me on that number, but of people living in Fiji have no access to clean, fresh water. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. And meanwhile, like all of these ads about Fiji water being like the greenest, and that, that is literally their entire selling point is okay, like, we so, are the greenest water you can buy. So in theory, we're talking about greenwashing. <laughs> And terrible people. Currently also terrible people. But I think a lot of greenwashing is committed by companies, right? A lot of In it, theory. Yeah. But a lot of the reason why they keep doing it and that it's successful is because of the psychology of consumers, right? Mm -hmm. Like the only reason that you can be successful at that is that there is a gigantic population of consumers who are buying your product being like, yeah, I feel better mm -hmm. because I bought this. And I am better than the person next to me because I bought this thing and I am being greener. And so it might be companies that are doing it, but the companies are only doing it because the people that buy their products are creating a scenario where that makes them money mm -hmm. for doing that, right? So companies are not going to stop doing it if it's profitable for them to do so. So the only way to 
end this would be to convince the population of people buying things that they shouldn't support that behavior, right? Mm-hmm. But recognizing the fallacy is kind of part of that, yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just mean, you can't convince companies to change their practices if they're making money doing it. They're just not going to. Most of them. Unless they're a company like Patagonia. or The rare good person yeah. takes over a company. It happens. No, but yeah. yeah. A, a company it's that rare. has, yeah. you know, that's a B Corp. Mm-hmm. Most companies are not B Corps. And right. they're going to make the choices that are the choices that are going to make them the most money. And sometimes, especially, I mean, if they're publicly traded companies, they're, they are obligated to do so. Right. right? And mm-hmm. so we have to change the mentality of the consumers and then the companies will respond. Agreed. Have you ever encountered people who are taking the greenification of their lives too seriously? Taking sustainability too seriously? I have, and I got a good story for this. So there's this uh, thing called the leave no trace and that's for backpacking and camping. And the philosophy is that you should leave it better than you found it. And it's a great philosophy. But one time this guy was giving me a hard time for going backpacking and there's this thing called a poop tube. And so he, (laughs) this person goes out there and poops in the tube and hikes it out. And, you know, I was like, that's just ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. I mean, you're carrying out the rest of your waste. Yeah. Carrying out all my trash and everything. But, you know, and I bury it six inches below ground, just like you're supposed to. And Not your trash. Yeah. Your uh, other waste. My other waste. Yes. (laughs) So this guy was giving me a hard time about it and saying that I didn't care about the environment and everything. And then I said, well, if you just killed yourself, then that would be the greenest thing you could possibly do. (laughs) Because you're not taking resources and everything. So there's like such an extreme and it's ridiculous. But that's like... You don't have to go to that extreme for us. I mean, you gotta just return to the earth, man. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, we're just, it's all the same cells. We're all just the same cells. <laughs> that is amazing. Be and like a salmon. Yes, exactly. Because that I find to be, it's like insufferable when someone takes it that seriously. There's little things we can do, but you can't do it all. You should do. You can't do everything. Yeah. Majority of what you do should be better than the other things you do to offset that. I like driving my van around. You know, I take mm-hmm. it on trips. Yeah. But I'm building a bunch of greenhouses and using low carbon negative materials to try to offset that, you know, greater than I am putting into it. Yeah, it's a little worrisome from a trend perspective, because Rachel, you really hit the nail on the head that it is essentially a a trend, a marketing trend right now. And so I almost worry sometimes if we burst the bubble too quickly, (laughs) they're gonna be like, ah, screw it. Like we can't do anything. I'm just gonna burn oil in my front yard because what difference does it make? It's just Mm -hmm. because people are trying. Yeah, there's a fatalist mentality. And I think it's tricky because you might have somebody who has incredibly good intentions and they just wanna do the best they can do and all this stuff. And then there's so much input of all these things that they were doing. They were recycling and they've always been recycling and blah, blah, blah. Now we learn that, well, that's, uh, you know, turns Mm -hmm. out, you know, or they try to make all the best efforts in all these different places, which is great. And I think that there's probably a population of people that can sustain the input of constant adaptation and and the challenging of what they thought they were doing that was good and and can manage to adapt and, and just continually adapt to the next best thing to try to always make a positive effort but there also are going to be a population of people that are that will just hit a wall with it Mm -hmm. and will be like ah well okay everything i've been trying to do i've been trying to do good and now everything i've been doing turns out that was wrong and a waste of time and i spent more money and all these things and they will just shut down so we have to find a way to i don't know help bring people along and, and create a way that remains approachable 
I, I don't really know what well, that is. Back in back when I lived in DC for a few years, one of the smartest things they did was they just adopted lead gold as code. Oh. It just became the building code. And like lead was no longer a thing. It was just like, no, actually, you just have to do all those things now. Right. But then so if you're talking about a multifamily building, yeah. and every single well, person in that building, building is a carnivore completely. The right. metrics of all this stuff, like even if you if you say that, oh, it's okay, I live in a lead gold building, right. therefore I'm going to eat steak every day of the week. Right, but at some point when, let's say, man, I'm going off the deep end of science here, but when synthetic meat, the real stuff grown from stem cells, when that <laughs> becomes real, it could replace meat. Mm -hmm. And then so the inst it's the institutionalization, sadly. I think because like people aren't going to change. We're going to do the easiest, cheapest thing. I mean, no matter what we say mm -hmm. until it's institutionalized, it's just um, harm reduction. Mm -hmm. God, that's so depressing. Yeah. Say something inspirational, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm making myself sad. Take us back. <laughs> Take us back to the days when it was just like, oh, look at all the clean beer cans in that wastebasket over there. Yeah. They're all going back Perfect to the earth. <laughs> Can only the wealthier among us afford to be significantly greener and if make that's a significant true difference. then society has failed i don't think so like it's not hard to build a planter box and grow some vegetables in your front yard you know it's not hard to reuse materials that are around you and if you have a front yard yeah but there are plenty of people who don't have a whole lot of money that get grow lights <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, a lot. So I feel like growing, I, I love that you brought that up because to me, that's just the easiest and it is very inexpensive. I mean, buying local, like there's all sorts of things you can do. Okay, but growing things takes time and attention. Mm -hmm. True. If you are working two jobs, three jobs, whatever, you don't have time to keep whatever you're trying to grow alive. That's a good you just point. don't. Mm -hmm. Maybe. I don't know. It take you don't. I promise <laughs> you, you don't. You've got a couple of jobs, you've got a couple of kids. Like you don't have time to grow garden. I mean, I, I would love for that to be true, but mm -hmm. it it takes a lot of care to do that and a lot of time. And it it's does. not it takes as effort, easy for sure. as it. It might have been more easy if the two jobs that you have are within walking distance. Blah blah blah. But once you add in like the commutes of where people are living and, and picking up their kids from school and moving them to childcare or whatever, like all the stuff, like it just not everyone has time to grow their own food. It's just, it just. But there's going to be decisions that you're going to make and there's going to be green options and there's going to be not green options. And that's something that can be institutionalized. Well, yeah, I just though. feel like this isn't solvable on an individual level. This has to be solvable on a societal level. Sure. Not everyone is going to be able to grow their own food. Sure. It's unreasonable. But, but some people can and they can grow enough more efficiently to feed more than their own family. Sure. That's yeah, why, that's absolutely. why societies work. That's why we got this and, and then we've lost a lot of this stuff we're, we're wasting so much mm -hmm. i mean if we don't want to talk about how much food we're wasting as a society it's crazy but that is a whole different conversation that we don't need to get into right That's now good point but bummer yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> you know just bringing it back yeah. down to the depressed ryan's level. crying so we're, sorry. All gonna, we're all gonna die yeah, yeah. yep <laughs> And then Which would be so green. Which would be so green. Exactly. green. The planet will be back to where it needs to be. Yep. You know, you can zone and regulate density in a way that everyone has a certain amount of square footage of yard or rooftop garden or something. Like these are things you can make rules that give people easy access. You can make them 
have a water hose bib at the top of their home. True. All these things are possible. You know, you can't literally hold their hand and put it on the hose bib and like, but you can get them almost all the way there. You can make it so easy that it's possible. That's true. And yeah, if we did make all that stuff required, you're used right, to be, that, was, that would be a big deal. Yeah, it used to be that in New York City, bedrooms didn't have to have natural light. And like everybody built all these buildings where they were just like, all these apartments and rooms in the center of buildings with no access to air or light. And then the zoning changed and it changed building forever that every single dwelling inside a building had to have access to natural light. And it was one of those things where just that simple rule changed the quality of life for everyone overnight. Right. And it could be as simple as that. Just trying to... Yeah, perk, perk it up a little. <laughs> yeah. So there is positive good to be had through regulatory changes. Ryan, I'm going to put you in charge <laughs> of sustainable regulatory practices in Seattle. Ooh. Congratulations, first of all. Yeah, thank you. It was a hard fought battle. <laughs> what are you gonna do with your complete control of that regulation, that sustainable regulation That in is Seattle? such a good question. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's great to have a focus on energy reduction and energy saving with solar panels and all that, but I think you could take it up a level and talk about carbon negative materials and how can we use less concrete? How can we eliminate spray foam and make it illegal? You know, all those types of things. I Yeah, so probably a higher focus on carbon reduction. And then we're having issues with water runoff. So, you know, maybe more green roofs, um, making that more of a thing for water control and proper ventilation. I think that's kind of figuring out what those calculations are. Because right now there's, they care more about drawing fresh air out, you know, with uh, fans and required ventilation that way, but it's not much on makeup air and, you know, it's kind of finicky. I think we need to do tighter envelopes and better filtration systems and all that good stuff. You got my vote. Yeah. <laughs> right. Water, water collection. <laughs> there you go. Good. I, I vote for all of it. <laughs> thank you again for coming back and doing this yeah, again. You. If you're listening to the show and you liked it, give us a review. Hey, if you're listening to the show and you only kind of liked it, give us a review. If you hated it, just pass. Don't review us. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, thanks, but, but no thanks. All of you, thank you very much for listening and check out Design Goggles podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also check out our blog on boardandbellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by Board and Bellum in Seattle anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks.